Good to see you on this uh, refreshingly brilliant day, right? Is that what we call this? Yeah. Well, happy Valentine's weekend to you, too. Uh, this is, um, we're in a series in Ruth called Love Revolution, so if you have a Bible, go with me to the eighth book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Ruth is where we'll be today, chapter three, week three in February, and uh, this is the week where Ruth really proposes to Boaz. So it, this is the biblical precedent, I'm setting it today, girls can propose to the guys, amen? That was pretty pitiful there. <clears throat> Let me tell you about some proposals, you ready? You've probably seen this one on YouTube, I, I did uh, just some looking around this week. There was one that took place at, the, at an NBA game, National Basketball Association game, at the halftime, and the guy proposed to the girl at the midway, at the middle of the court, okay? At the, half point, at the halfway point of the game, in the middle of the court, with all the stands full, he gets on one knee, proposes, she runs out and says no. Several lessons to learn, ready? <clears throat> Don't propose in public or on national TV. And don't propose if you don't know the answer in public and on national TV. That's probably some lessons there. Maybe you heard of the one, too, of the baseball game. It was summer summertime baseball game, and a guy decides he's going to propose to his wife, but he wants to be real cool about it. So he, he rents one of those planes that has the banner behind it. You, you heard about this story? And it just the banner goes by as the ball game's going, and the plane goes by, banner goes by, it just says, marry me. Okay. The problem with that sign was it was a little too vague. And so that couple left happily on their way to get married. A hundred other couples left the stadium mad at each other. <laughs> Go figure. Online services will tell you what not to do and what to do. One of the online services says, don't propose in front of her parents. You have to say that? I mean, is it that obvious? Don't put anything out, don't put the ring in anything that the girl might eat. And then it occurs to me, I have daughters who've actually worked in food service. One of them works in, worked at a fine steakhouse, actually. And their joke among the waitresses was on Valentine's Day, they were going to buy these real cheap uh, plastic diamond kind of rings and just drop them in the girls' water glasses, serve their water, and then walk away <laughs> and see what happens. Yes, girls melt, guys sink. Um, so... I, it, that, in mental note to self, you're saying right now, never eat in restaurants where Dave's daughters serve. Yeah, you're thinking that right now. <clears throat> I have to read this one. This one's so good. One guy lived in a different state from his girlfriend, so he mailed airplane tickets to her. When she arrived, a limo was waiting. Um, and when she got in the limo, music was playing of a compilation of her favorite songs. She was taken to a name brand store where there were a rack of dresses and shoes waiting for her, personally handpicked by this guy and the store manager. Um, he was able to, she was able to choose from uh, the pickings her favorite. She got dressed and then was driven to a salon for a three-hour treatment for massage, pedicure, manicure, hairstyling, and makeup. I hate this guy already, don't you? <laughs> I mean, okay. Um, at the, so then the limo then picks her up after the makeup is done, picks her up and drives her to the entrance to a resort. At the resort, she gets out of the limo only to, to get into a... Uh, a horse and buggy waiting for her. As she's driven into the resort, there's a small lake with more than 100 candles lit and a red carpet where violinists are playing uh, songs that this guy has written. 
Guys, we hate this guy, don't we? So he walks on the red carpet. He appears at the top of the stairs and begins to sing the song that he's composed for her. And then he kneels down on one knee and a light behind him blazes the words, will you marry me? Then he stood up and he sang the finale to the song backed by a 45-piece orchestra. When she said yes, that was the strike for them to light the fireworks over the lake. Guys, do we hate this guy? I mean, you can't win with that guy, can you? He's going to make all the rest of us look bad. All right, I have one more. Just hang with me. One more. And this one was um, maybe a little more reasonable. There was a young couple about to get married, and as they were planning their marriage, they wanted to live in a house. They found a house that they could buy together. It was a repossessed house, and we all know what that means. Great deal, but a lot of work. So they spent most of their dating time at the Home Depot buying things that they're going to put in this house or rehab in this house. And because they'd spent so much on this little house and countless hours were spent at the Home Depot. So sometimes they would work uh, so hard that the manager would say they would just come into the Home Depot and talk about their future together as they strolled the aisles and dreamed out loud about what their little house would be like. So when this guy was ready to propose marriage, he made an arrangement with the manager at the Home Depot. Then he called his girlfriend and told her to meet him at the Home Depot. When she arrived at the Home Depot, the manager said, oh, he's over in the garden section. She walks into the garden section and finds he has corded that section off and he set up a little folding table with candlelight and takeout dinner inside the Home Depot. He seats her, he gets down on one knee, he proposes to her with a potted plant that they will plant at the new house together. She says yes. All the girls go, oh, thank you. (laughs) Boom. I'll let your small group vote on what your favorite uh, proposal was, okay? My goodness. Have I given you enough time to find Ruth? Okay. It's such a small book, isn't it? It's like four pages long, you go right past it. Some of you are going, I'm glad I'm not the only one. Here we are in the story of Ruth. In chapter one, we found the resolution, which is the commitment. Commitment to God is the only way relationships make it. Commitment to God and commitment to the person you're in the relationship with. That's number one. If you don't have the resolution, the commitment, it's not gonna work, no matter what you do. The way the story opens is this. Elimelech and Naomi are married. They have two sons. They live in the city of Bethlehem, but there's a famine in the land, so they decide to move out of the Hebrew term house of bread, that's the word for Bethlehem, to Moab has different meanings, but it does not mean house of bread. It's a place of chaos, false gods, a lot of terrible things happening. They move to Moab, husband and wife, two sons. The sons then marry girls from Moab. So now not only are they in Moab, but Moab is now in them. They have become Moabite thinking in their, in their heads. So one by one, the guys begin to die. First Elimelech, then the two sons die. So all that's left by the end of chapter one is, are, are these three women, Naomi, the mother, and Orpah and Ruth, two daughters. Naomi hears that there's uh, food back in Bethlehem, so she says, I'm going to go back. And she packs up her stuff, heads back to Bethlehem. The girls feel responsible for her, so they travel with her. And partway there, she turns to the girls and says, go back to your people, go back to your land, go back to your country, go back to serve your gods, do what you want to do, get married again, 
have children because this is all a bad idea. Just go home and start over again. I'm sorry I bothered you. Well, <clears throat> Orpah says, okay. She kisses Naomi and goes back to Moab. We never hear from her again. But Ruth says, no, I'm going to stay with you. Your, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. There's, that's the issue of commitment right there, resolution. And she tells us in a statement, she is really committed. And I think, frankly, is becoming a believer, follower of the God of the Old Testament. Well, when chapter 2 opens, they've gotten back to Bethlehem, but now uh, uh, Naomi has no money. Ruth decides, I'll go do some workfare work. She gets to glean a field. The field she gleans is a field owned by a guy by the name of Boaz. Boaz is the hero of the story. Okay? Boaz uh, owns the property. She's gleaning the field. He, he remarks, who is that woman? Who does she belong to? She's a Moabite woman. And they respond and say, well, but she's a real good worker. She works hard. She doesn't take breaks except um, when other people are taking them. She's just a great girl. And that's when we see the romance develop because Boaz is really a great guy of great character. He's described as a man of valor. He is a guy of great character and wonderful compassion. But what he sees in Ruth is something similar. He sees in her this honest faith, taking care of her family, a strong work ethic, all those things of internal beauty. And that's how the romance develops. And that's how we left it. It's a beautiful thing. Today I want to talk to you about redemption because this week in chapter 3, they're going to get engaged and they're going to get married. Next week they'll get married, have a baby, live happily ever after. Okay, come back next week. We'll get the rest of the story. Chapter 3, verse 1. One day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find you a home, find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Stop there. Think of this now. Naomi has been through times of great wealth in the property at, at Bethlehem and then times where they've lived outside the country as foreigners and then lost their fortune. She's lost her husband, her two sons. She's been really depressed, almost to this point of not even sure. You know, she's giving really bad advice. Uh, by end of chapter one. And now she sees a glimmer of hope. She's gone back to Bethlehem and she sees there's a glimmer of hope. Now she's turned from being depressed. She's turned into a matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. She's off and, you know, she's thinking, I want to provide for you a home. And you know what she's thinking? She's thinking, I want, I want Ruth for you to have a baby. And even more importantly, this is what she's really thinking. I want for me to have a grandbaby. That's what she's really thinking. How do I know that? Because chapter four, I've read the end of the book. I know that. She'll walk through town holding out this little baby. And they'll say, Naomi had a baby. She didn't have a baby. Ruth had the baby. But she'll own this like her own. The reason I know that is, is I, I have met, I have met uh, middle-aged people whose kids are getting married. And you know what they'll say? They'll, uh, I pronounce you husband and wife. You know, as they walk down the aisle, the parents will say, I can't wait for grandkids. And I go, hey, 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 wait, wait, wait. You've been, you've been telling them to slow down all this time? Then, now you can't just tell them, just flip the switch, dude. You give them some time, let them get settled in their home. And, and then they'll say to me, they owe me grandkids for what they did to me. And that goes with the saying, not a biblical one, but a true one. Grandchildren are the reward for not killing your children. If you've had testy teenagers... You've had this before. Your kids finally get married and then they hold a baby. And I've heard this before. I've seen young grandmothers hold this little baby and go, I hope he causes you all the pain you caused me. And, oh, what a blessing. I mean, if you're ever, whatever that it is, you know, it's just such a blessing. 
I know that Ruth wanted, not only for Naomi to be happy, she wanted to be happy, and she was. Next week we'll talk about that. But she was happy, happiest, when she was walking through town with this little baby Obed. So when she says, verse 1, you say, how do you get all that out of verse 1? Well, it's all in the text. If you just read through what's being said and then what she actually does. My daughter, I want to find you a home and where you'll be provided for. In other words, I want you to have children. And sure enough, that's the point of it all. Now, Boaz, verse 2, with whose woman you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, you will, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Stop there. We have no idea what that verse means because we go home, you get up in the morning, you open a box of cereal, right? I have a little, I have a jar, round jar, a guy with a hat, blue hat, right? He's Quaker, right? Is that a religion or a food? I'm not sure, but it's, that's what I, I pour it out, I pour some oatmeal, right? You do the same thing? I couldn't, I couldn't go thresh the floor or winnow the barley, I mean, what in the world? Because that's what we have machines to do today. But in that day, that's what they did. They'd finish off a crop. They would uh, they'd wrap it up in bundles, put it on a wagon, and go to a place called the threshing floor. Now, a little bit of history here. A threshing floor is an elevated area on the farm. That threshing floor is um, maybe a half acre big. Not, not huge, but big enough and it's a risen area on the farm. It's a little bit of a rise, and then it's flat there. And what they would do is they would knock everything down, all the trees, everything, and the vegetation. They'd stomp the ground hard so it'd be hard clay. And by doing that then, then they bring in the harvest, drop it off there, and as the sun goes down, here's what would happen. They would take that barley, shake it, rattle it, roll it, and then toss it in the air, and the breeze that would come up on that hill at the early evening, the breeze would carry the chaff away. And all you'd get left is just the barley that you want, okay? And so they would have this threshing party, really, if you will. And this is when they're, this is their year's income right there. This is huge to get this. Because they have their whole year's income, not just for this guy, but for the whole company. You have to stop thinking, oh, this is a family business. This is a business. He has employees. This is a lot of money on the mound, and it's at night, so this is not a safe place to be because someone could come and steal it. They're not going to go to bed and leave it out on the mound overnight. It's not going to happen. They're going to sleep there because once you start the threshing process, you're going to stay with it. On top of that, you have to remember, this is this time of the judges. The season of the judges means everyone does what's right in their own eyes. So robbers could come in. They'd wait for you to get on with all the the running of the, the threshing, Get it all done and processed, and they come in and rob you and steal your whole year's income. In our equivalency, this would be hundreds of hundreds of thousands of dollars of, of cash crop, if you will. And there'd be no way you could prove it was stolen once it was off your property. There's no way you could identify it. So these guys would go to the threshing floor, set up shop, and then they'd set up guard. They'd sleep there and thresh every night until this thing was done. Now, as that, they would throw that stuff in the air, this... The barley would drop because it's heavier. The chaff would blow away. And then that's the money. And that's when they're making bank. And there'd be another guy there'd be raking it. You may have seen pictures of this. Even in early American history, we had it, where people would do that with, with wheat, barley, and, and uh, other grains. And they might even do it with a bed sheet, where they grind this, lay it in a bed sheet, and then they take the four corners of the bed sheet, flip it, flip it, and the breeze would blow it off. 
And by doing that, then the only thing that's left is the grape uh, grain. That is still practiced in some parts of the world. And if, I'm telling you, if you ever did it, you would value your food. If you knew where your food came from, if you ground your own wheat and grew your own corn, I mean, you would really value it. Don't you do that? You know, when I grow a tomato. I go, hey, we're eating a salad. Eat the tomato. It's like a $12 tomato to me because I spent so much time on it, right? Have you ever done that? When you grow your own stuff, so it is. For them, this was their best. I have a, a brother who, a number of years ago, when he was a teenager, actually got to go to Chile, South America. And while he was in South America, he was doing some mission work. But some missionaries there had the hankering for peanut butter, and they didn't have any peanut butter at the time. So Minnie Sue, the, this woman, decided, I'm going to make peanut butter for my kids. She goes and gets a bag of peanuts. She shells them all, a whole bag of peanuts. And we're talking a bag of peanuts. Shells them all, lays it on a bed sheet, crumbles off. You know that little shell that's beyond the shell? That little bit of skin? She wants that off before she grinds. So she takes a bed sheet, flips it in the breeze, gets it, grinds it, stomps the peanuts, gets all the peanuts stomped, then puts it in a churner, kind of like our modern, our old-fashioned butter churner. You know an old-fashioned butter churner? Then she churns it all day. Mike comes home and says to me, she worked all day for a half a jar of peanut butter. And, you know, Mike could go to the cabinet and just lather it. You ever do that with peanut butter? Oh, yeah, I'm hungry. Another layer. This is like gold. And you don't really value what you have until you have to really process it yourself. These guys really knew what they had, so they really wanted to guard it. Now, so when she says, hey, you know the guy who owns the property, you've been working with the women, He's going to be winnowing this barley tonight. He's going to be on the threshing floor. This is serious business. This is making bank time because he, they know the value of this. And because it's like cash, they're not going to walk away. We know he's going to be there. We know he's going to sleep there because this is income. Uh, he's not going to let it go. Verse 3. So, but, and by, by the way, before I go to 3, you have to know too, these guys have been working and the shells are flying and they're they're shelling and working. So when that stuff flies and you're sweating, guess where it goes? These guys look like leftover shells. So that puts her in comparison to verse 3 now. Wash and put on perfume. You're going to look distinctly different than the people who are shelling this stuff. Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. Verse 4. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then you go and cover his feet when you, and lie down. He'll tell you what to do. You can just imagine um, the breeze is going, the shells are going. If you're allergic to peanuts or whatever the thing is on the field at the time, it's in the air. It's everywhere. And so uh, it's, they've got this dust stuff flying. They're going to eat. They're going to drink. They're going to lay down, maybe sing a song because this is harvest time. It's a wonderful time to make money. Um, and, and then... She is going to lay down next to him and uncover his feet. Now, the perfume, I think, is a wonderful thing. By the way, I, I think it's, it's wonderful for couples to dress up for each other. I need to say that. She's going to treat him well, even though he's working in the field. When he met her, she was working in the field. If you get the flip of this, he was dressed nicely riding on a horse. She was working in the field. Didn't feel real pretty at the time, probably. So this is now flipped. She's going to really dress up, dress nicely, get bathed, smell nice. One writer said, 
I think I know the name of the perfume. We have no reason to think this is the name, but the name of the perfume is called Midnight in Moab. Isn't that that great? Midnight in Moab, just a little dab. But understand, too, the inner character is what's going to show through, but it's really cool, I think, for couples to dress up for each other, treat each other nicely. It's honorable. Now, why is is she uncovering his feet? A a couple of things. Uh, Some would suggest, some writers suggest, that this passage is saying... They want Boaz to wake up naturally, not to be alarmed, because he is on guard duty. Essentially, all of them are. And if if they were yell, Boaz, he would get up with a sword and start swinging. You don't want that. So covering his feet allows him to wake up realizing he's cold. That's one interpretation of this text. Could very well be true. But I think the second one is better. The second interpretation is this is part of an ancient custom. Uncovering the feet was, was a custom. Then to say, cover me, is the is the response that she is going to ask Boaz, would you cover me? In other words, would you you marry me, essentially? Now, some say, thirdly, this is a euphemism for their sexual encounter. I don't think that's true. And I only need one reason to believe it's not true, but there are three. It's so obvious from the text. There's a ton of people around. This is a communal event. They aren't sleeping out in the woods by themselves. Um, There is no way that could happen. And if if a foreign girl approaches the owner of the property and propositions him, you can bet that girl's going to get kicked off the property. So it's not going to happen. But the second reason is because Boaz will actually say, this is a woman of great, noble character. She's a God-honoring woman. But he's not going to say that about a girl who sleeps around. It's not going to happen. But the third reason is this. This would violate an old um, book called the Mishnah, which is a, a traditional writing, Jewish writing, that said even if you're a near kinsman, you cannot have sexual relations. Ahead. It's kind of like flirting with an officer. This is just doomed to fail right from the beginning. So if you do that, you're automatically in violation. You cannot marry. So I, there's a threefold reason this is not a, a euphemism for a sexual encounter. What this is is her uncovering the feet, saying, cover me, which we'll get to in just a moment. Now, Verse 5, I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor, did everything that her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking, he was in good spirits. He went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and laid down. Now, she waits for his day to be done. Get this. This is all about the timing. Okay? When you approach somebody and you want a certain answer, go my kids know this, and they haven't even read the book. It, they, they go at the right time, when you can get a yes, okay? And if you're afraid you're going to get a no from mom, then for goodness sake, go to dad. And if you think dad's going to say no, then go to mom. And if you're not sure, then say, the other thinks it's okay, you know. And then I get home and say, I thought you said it was, and she said, I never knew anything about it. Ooh. You want a yes, then go at the right time and talk to the right people. See how that goes? So she waits for him to be done working and that he's not busy with the details of the day, when they're hungry. Um, don't do it when he's not in the mood. Some suggest that, you're, that she's approaching him while he's drunk, which is not the case at all. He, he has eaten and he has drunk, but he's not drunken because if, this were, if he were drunken, then he would say in the morning, uh, I don't remember talking to you in the night, that's one, or uh, I regret this decision. But we don't see him regretting the decision at all. The storyline doesn't seem to support that. 
in the morning what we see is him getting up saying, I want to finish the deal that we said we were working on. So in the middle of the night, verse 8, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. And he asked, who are you? And she says, I'm it's your servant Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since I'm your guardian redeemer of your family. Spread the corner of your garment over me. It's a Middle Eastern way of saying, cover me, marry me. And it's still practiced in some parts of the world, cover me. And it's, it's done with uh, headdresses, it's done in, in, in different customary ways. It, it'd be our equivalent today, you're, you're in a store and you're five bucks short at the checkout and the, the person behind you says, I got it covered. I got you covered. You're, you're getting coffee and you realize you left your wallet in the car. The person around you says, I have it covered. Uh, and, and, and understand this, that covering is, is like a, a legal covering. I will take care of you. I will provide for you. Um, I mean, jet ahead to 2015. If you were to go into any office in the state of Maryland and apply for a marriage license, they are not going to ask the guy uh, before we sign this marriage license, you pay the fee and all that kind of stuff, and you fill out the form. They don't ever ask the guy, do you love her, really? They don't ask that question. They don't ask the girl, you think this is going to last you a lifetime? Are you sure? Could you do better than that? I mean, is there's some other guy out there? They don't ask that question. Do you know why? They don't care. <laughs> they do not care. Do you know what they care about? If you're legally bound to each other, will you pay his bills? Will you pay her bills? Will you pay his taxes? Will you pay his, her taxes? It's the, it's, it's the covering. Get this? It's the legal binding. That's what they care about. Now, the good news is this. There are some uh, things that the, the Lord gives to us to tell us about himself. Um, some stories he tells about us, like, like uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything I need, nothing shall I want, Psalm 23. That's called in literature an anthropomorphism, anthro-man-pomorphism, morph, change. God is explaining who he is by explaining, I'm like a shepherd to you. He does that again, in a, not an anthro, but a zoological morphism. It, and he does it in Psalm 91. And he will cover you with his feathers and under his wings. It's almost tearful when I say it under his wings you, you will find refuge you get this what God is doing he's saying I will be your covering and he's saying that like a big uh, swan in a pond and you've seen them where the little chickadees are behind and that swan will protect the little chickadees and that's why the Lord says I'll protect you and under my wings he's saying you'll be able to hide and find refuge when Ruth says to Boaz, cover me, it's the same word the psalmist uses for wings. It's that same idea in, in uh, Ruth chapter 2 says it as well. Will you cover? Do you have me covered? Not just legally, but, but in every kind of way so my family could be at rest. It's a beautiful thing that's happening. Now, several things are happening. She's proposing to him, but you have to understand. She has the legal right to do that because because he is next in, he is second in line, really, uh, to, to be able to marry her. And so she is saying, will you do this? And she has the right to do that. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. Um, verse 10 now. The Lord bless you, my daughter. 
He replies, he's saying, this is a great idea. God bless you for saying something. In other words, I've been waiting for this and I want this. God bless you. This uh, kindness is greater than that which he showed earlier. Get this, he never says about her, uh, I love some aspect of the beauty of your, of your body or of your face or your cheeks or anything else. What does he say? I, I love your kindness. That's what speaks to him. I love your kindness. This is even better than I thought. You've not run after younger men. He feels older because he is. And rich or poor, she's saying, I want you, Boaz, of all the people on the mount. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid, Boaz says. I will do for you what you ask, all that you ask. All the people in the town know. They know that you are a, here he is again. How romantic. You're a woman of noble character. You are a virtuous woman. It, you have to notice, it's, it's just like it's the answer to his prayers. And when he describes her, he can't help but say things like, you are the kindest person I know. You could have gone after the younger guys. You are of great character. And that is a, uh, those words are the same words you find in Proverbs 31 of the virtuous woman being of great character and of great worth. Verse 12, although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of her family, there is another who's more closely related than I. Here's where the drama really gets twisted. There's another guy who could marry you and he's closer relative than I am. So stay here for the night in the morning if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, then good. Let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. I think it's a wonderful thing. I think it's super sweet that Boaz has already looked into, if I were to marry her, how would that happen? What would that look like? Oh, there's someone else in line. So I need to know who that is. He already knows who it is. You get this? Uh, how romantic is that, that he's thought that through, how sweet that is. He will honor the code of the law, but if that near relative just can't redeem her, then Boaz says, I'm in. And he seals the deal with, a, uh, with that conversation with a vow. He says, uh, uh, if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, he vows it. I will, I will redeem you. I will take care of you. I'll marry you. And so she lays at his feet, verse 14, until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, um, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. Why is that significant? She gets up early in the morning. You don't want to ruin this deal. They don't want a scandal or, or any kind of reputation hurt. I think, frankly, the clothing that she has, not only her best clothing, but there may be an outer clothing over her to disguise a bit of her identity because probably there were just guys on the threshing floor staying through the night. Probably the women went back to their homes. So he says, you go back, verse 14, and verse 15, bring your shaw you're wearing. Before you go, hold out your shaw. And we think that means not only head shaw, but it may have been a head shaw that actually wrapped to her shoulders and around her waist. It may have been a big piece of cloth. And the reason we believe that is because he's going to pour six measures, verse 15, six measures of barley are placed in a bundle on her. And then she went back into town. Six bundles, six measures of barley are bundled to her. That's 60 pounds of our weight today. 60 pounds of grain, okay? All the girls are saying, Boaz is really generous, right? And all the guys are thinking, she's one strong woman, <laughs> right? 60 pounds, that's a lot. But you know what that is? 
That's his way of sealing the deal and saying to Naomi, not just to Ruth, but to Naomi, I am absolutely serious about marrying your daughter-in-law. And if there was ever any doubt, I'll, put, I'll give you a gift, I'll seal the deal. Okay? Now, the, all those pictures are really huge because they are laced all throughout the epistles of the New Testament about what Jesus does for us. And he's sealing the deal and giving us the gift and telling us to trust and that we'll make the way and that he'll redeem us. All those are great analogies that cross over just in, like, in lightning speed once you begin to see it. This is his sealing of the deal. So he's not, he's not drunk, he's not out of his mind, he's not in any regret. He is anticipating, we're going to handle this today. And so when Ruth comes to her mother-in-law, verse 16, Naomi asks, how, how did it go, my daughter? And she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And if, so if anyone doubted Boaz's devotion or his intent or his commitment to the relationship, uh, this, this did it. The shaw was, is full. Verse 18, then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you, you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the deal is settled. This is settled today. And that's where we end the story, the end of chapter three. Next week, they're gonna, they're gonna get married. They're gonna have a baby. Bells will ring. And uh, it'll be a great happily ever after story. But here, here's the big idea. Redemption is the big idea. And the big idea is relationships call for investment and this particular investment was huge because he has to buy her out get her property back restore the first husband's name give him dignity and and restore everything back to the to its original ownership it's a big investment on the part of boaz but he is more than willing to do it and the greater the relationship the more you're going to have to invest in it just that simple things don't come easily but let me tell you about one more relationship, and then we're going to close in prayer. That's what Jesus has done for you and me. We are without. We have no way of supporting ourselves, and we can't get ourselves out of the hole. And what Jesus does, he says, I'm willing to redeem you. I'll buy you out. You just have to trust me. And when we turn ourselves into him and say, would you cover me? What does Jesus say? Of course I will cover you. I would be glad the Lord bless you. I would be honored to cover you. If ever you doubted the Lord's love, no, he was willing and, and, and more than willing to cover you. You say, well, you don't know my debt. And my word to you is, I don't need to know your debt. I don't need to know your past. All I know is that he covers a girl who lived in a foreign country who was far from God and lived in habits that were far from God for a long period of her life. If ever it was messy, you say, well, my decisions are messed up. I've made decisions badly over a long period of time. In fact, there are times I, on my best days I can mask it, but if people knew, they would distance themselves from me, and I'm sure Boaz felt the same way, uh, or, or uh, Ruth felt the same way, and yet Boaz knew. He'd done the research on her and said, I still want her as mine. And so the Lord opens the door for you and me to say, just will you trust me? Will you welcome me into your life because i will redeem you i'll pull you out of the pit and one day marry you that's what the church is the bride of christ it really is it's a word picture going to revelation but it all begins when you trust him and then you begin to realize all that jesus has put into the relationship even before you knew it he already has invested in you 
and he already wants to gift you. If you were to hold your shaw out, some say that she tied it on her waist and held it like an apron out, and the Lord just gifts you. And you go back and you wonder if there was any wonder that he loves me. Here's the proof. And he powers on the blessings, and you know it. So now the decision is, will you trust him? And for Christians, will you follow him, knowing that he plunders on the blessings? He is so good to us. Amen? Let's bow for prayer. And as we pray, let's stand to our feet. Would you stand with me? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Sadiq and Tashia will be off to the front, uh, up here to the left, to pray. It, it, maybe your prayer is just, I just need to trust Christ, embrace him in my life. Step up to the front. They're happy to help you with that in the process and give you some literature, whatever you need, uh, that just will help you and bless you. But for many of us in the room, it's, it's, the prayer is, Lord, I, I realize just how much Jesus really does love me. And, and anything that I would do to undo his love, he is greater than that. And the cross has already paid for that. Even before I committed the sin. So Lord, may we marvel at the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. And may we revel and live in it as victors who know what it's like to be redeemed and to be given another opportunity. We thank you, Lord, that you demonstrate your love for us by giving to us Christ, but some 1,300 years before Christ even comes, you demonstrate your love for us by giving us this word picture of just how unfailing your love is towards us. May we bask in that love and may we love you back, we pray. In Jesus' matchless name, the church says amen. Amen. God bless you.